I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. I hope you're safe and above all healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of conversations about issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Uh, today, I'm truly pleased to welcome back to the program the Carnegie Connects, David Rennie, the Economist Bureau Chief in Beijing and author of what I would argue is a must-read, the must-read Economist column, Shaguan. David, uh, welcome back. It's great to see you. Uh, you don't need an, an introduction, but you deserve one. As I was looking at your bio, it's really quite remarkable. I mean, you joined The Economist in 2007. You were the Charlemagne com columnist in Brussels from July 2020. 10 to 2012. Uh, you, you wrote the Bagot column based in London. The summer 2012, you moved to Washington. You were the Lexington columnist from 2012 to 2017. Then you opened Chaguan in uh, Beijing in 2018. Plus, you've been around Daily Telegraph, uh, Spectator, uh, The Evening Standard, a lot of awards and a lot of on-the-ground, ground-truth experience. So it's, it's terrific to have you here uh, once again. Um, it's also good to have you for another reason. My own sense, and I don't uh, follow China uh, on in, in any sort of detail, is that the discussion in Washington on China is often conducted at the 30,000-foot level. Maybe that's understandable. It's statecraft, it's matters dealing with Taiwan, with Ukraine, bilateral relations. My own sense, and maybe it's not true just studying China, that the conceptual level often tends to crowd out the what I call the ground truth, the granular level. And maybe that's the key, part of the key of, quote, getting China right, which is the title of our discussion today, if that's possible, by the way, for outsider observers. And that's why watching you and following your work, I think it's in incredibly uh, important. Um, I wanted to start with a, uh, a question that has nothing to do with policy, but it's more about craft. Um, if getting China right, if that's possible, represents a sort of unassembled jigsaw puzzle on your living room floor, how do you go about assembling the pieces um, in your work, Chaguan is a, uh, or a tea house was for centuries, according to The Economist, a place where Chinese would gather from diverse backgrounds to share bits and pieces of information and conduct business. So let me ask you first, um, how do you go about gathering the smaller pieces, the granular that inform some of your extraordinary columns, which draw larger, broader conclusions about Chinese, econ uh, Chinese economy and Chinese uh, politics. Well, thank you for having me again. It's a real pleasure to be here. I think that one of the great privileges of writing a weekly column for The Economist for the last, whatever it is, 17 years, is it's this kind of one page, it's a thousand words, basically. And it's just enough room to go somewhere and look at something relatively kind of discreet and standalone in close up, and then try, hopefully, to draw a kind of bigger uh, a kind of conclusion at the end. And, and almost all of my columns begin with a question. 
And one of the great advantages of having worked in Washington for nine years in total and worked in Brussels for five years is I try very hard to think, uh, what would my readers who you know, spend a long time doing smart and interesting things around the world but don't necessarily know China, what's the question that they would ask if they were here? What's the question that I'm on the ground kind of asking on their behalf? And it's often quite useful to just sort of ask a dumb question. So recently in sort of the field of foreign policy, I've been talking to various people about China's relationships with Russia, China's uh, relationship with North Korea, whether China was entirely comfortable indeed with North Korea getting closer to Russia, China's relationship with Iran and with Iran's proxies, and how much did it or did it suit China to have, you know, the Houthis shooting missiles at ships in the Red Sea, including a couple of Hong Kong flagged ships, although on the whole not shooting at Chinese ships. And the more that I thought about all these kind of various conversations, I thought, actually, an interesting question is, given that we know that the Chinese foreign policy machine is absolutely wedded to stability above all, how did they end up with so many extraordinarily destabilizing friends? And what do they think about? And how do they kind of rationalize that? And so I then just went and sort of talked to as many Chinese experts. Uh, Beijing is a very good place to talk to uh, ambassadors. A lot of countries send very smart ambassadors here who've done big jobs elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, you can talk to, it's, you know, it's like sort of Vienna uh, just after World War II. It's a kind of nest of very smart people, slightly dodgy people, people who are not quite sure who they are, spies and sort of diplomats. And, you know, you can talk in the same day to the Israelis and the and people from the, you know, from the Arab world. You can bump into the Taliban at the UN kind of uh, representatives garden party. You can sort of talk to extraordinary people. And so that's often the sort of the starting point of big foreign policy columns. Or you can ask yourself a domestic kind of dumb question and try and research that by going out into the field and just understanding one kind of piece of the mosaic, bringing it back. And putting it, you know, if you if you like your image, this is the piece into the jigsaw puzzle. You know, I'll, I'll raise one issue in a column you wrote. You you wrote a column, I think, in February earlier this month, or maybe in January, on the mass wedding. Um, that's a granular sort of um, observation, and yet you drew broader conclusions. Could you tell our viewers about the mass wedding? What was the mass wedding? What what did it represent? So actually, I have been watching for for quite a while. Uh, every now and then you'd see flashes, sort of glimpses above the waterline of this very, very large sort of propaganda beast, which is this new era civilization practice campaign that's been going for a few years now. And it's really absolutely enormous. And we're talking tens of thousands of newly built or renovated party offices down at the grassroots level, whose job is to try and uh, teach the Chinese masses good habits, try and eliminate bad habits. And you can see party documents talking explicitly about how this is designed to also bring the party into every home. And by solving practical problems that matter to ordinary people, show that the Communist Party, in their words, is good and should be followed and listened to. And so one of the practical problems that the Chinese Communist Party has been trying to solve for a long time in the countryside is very expensive bride prices, where men have to pay you know, maybe more than a year's income for their entire family to try and find a wife. And there's a shortage of wives in China because of decades of selective abortions, there are now 35 million more men than women in China. So if you're a poor man with not much education and not much to kind of offer, it is exceptionally unlikely that you're going to find a wife now. And so the party is trying to have a campaign against bride prices and to have more frugal weddings in the interest of social stability and to promote their own kind of grassroots work. And one of the things I, you know, I asked assistants of wonderful Chinese staff 
can you find me an event which is part of this enormous but very little notice campaign? They found a mass wedding. I went there. I spent a fantastic weekend in the kind of the wilds of rural Jiangxi. And as ever, it was worth getting on the plane, going into the mountains, because this mass wedding, which was incredibly kind of 66 couples, all dressed identically, swearing an oath in unison to listen to the Communist Party and to the Communist Party. But then because I was there on the ground, this idea was they were all newlyweds. They'd all sworn an oath to swear off bride prices, to obey the party. They got extraordinary kind of Maoist level of control. And then I heard this child's voice going, Mama. And then this little boy ran out and hid under the robes of one of the brides. And I thought, well, hang on, that's not an obvious newlywed. So I started talking to some of the couples afterwards. And it turned out that most of them were not newlyweds. Some of them had married up to 10 years. They were party members who'd been told to take part in this mass wedding because the bosses needed to look good. And then when you talk to people on the ground, they'd say, well, actually, this kind of campaign does not really make a difference to anything. And so it was a way of looking at how social engineering is extraordinarily important to someone like Xi Jinping. But when you go to Jiangxi and you see the kind of the people on the ground, um, you realize that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kind of wrinkles and complexities to how these campaigns work. And the party is not 100 feet tall. Uh, it doesn't only, it doesn't have kind of totalitarian control over this society. Right. So the takeaway on the mass wedding is what? The party's efforts to uh, insinuate itself both for practical and political reasons, into the everyday lives of ordinary Chinese to make their lives easier and yet to instruct them in in what? So the takeaway was that it's an extraordinarily effective and incredibly ambitious piece of political marketing to make sure that the party is in everyone's lives in a way that, frankly, was not true when I was first posted here a quarter century ago. The party is so much more visible and in many cases pretty popular. But what it isn't very successful is as a piece of social engineering, because the China of 2024 is very different from the China of, say, Chairman Mao in the 1960s and 1970s. It just is much better educated, much more traveled. You know, people have lived in big cities as migrant workers inside China. They just have a sort of much more, they're not independent minded like Americans, maybe, but you know, they'll talk about being a much more collective society. But so that was basically the, the, the headline was very effective political marketing, very, very large ambitions for the party to be very present in people's lives. But actually, Maoist-style social, social engineering is not that easy to pull off in today's China. Mm. So um, as you go about the work of assembling these pieces <clears throat> on the granular level, what are, what are some of the, again, another question on craft. What are the do's and, excuse me, the do's and don'ts? Um, I mean, you're operating within a, highly authoritarian society, um, what what lines uh, are you able to navigate and what lines can't you cross? So rule number one is don't get anyone Chinese into terrible trouble. So compared to even how I did my job when I first arrived this time around six years ago, I hardly ever name anyone now, even someone at a mass wedding. I wouldn't name them. I would just describe them. I'd quote them. Uh, I have a podcast as well. The Economist has a weekly podcast called Drum Tower about China. I'll often record people, but I always very much ask them, can I use your voice on this podcast? I would not use their real name or their name at all. Um, you have to really protect people. Um, so that's the kind of rule number one is do not get Chinese people into trouble just for talking to you. Uh, and it's much easier not being TV. Uh, podcasting and, and written work is easier. And then just getting the job done, because not every single time, but you know, relatively often, the police will turn up and try and essentially stop you doing your job. And they'll come to your hotel at night or they'll 
uh, follow you around in a very obvious way. They'll follow and listen into your interviews so you can't get any work done. Uh, if you go somewhere sensitive uh, like Xinjiang, you know, if I was to try and get on a plane from here in Beijing to go to Xinjiang, I'd be picked up at Beijing Airport. I'd have a secret policeman sitting next to me on the flight all the way to Xinjiang, as happened to me in the past. You know, you get on, you know, you're followed by 10 people in three cars. I mean, it's impossible to get uh, anywhere close to sort of a, 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 an interview with someone, say, a Uyghur, uh, without getting into tremendous difficulty. So, you know, all of us have had to adjust. You do a lot of your reporting uh, sort of before you go. You try and gather documents to prove your point. You try and use Chinese government documents to show what is happening. You know, procurement documents showing them building an orphanage with kind of prison-like security, that kind of thing, so that they can't come back at you and say you've made it up because they've learned the whole rhetoric about fake news and Western media uh, being liars. So you have to really uh, assume you're operating in a zero trust environment. You have to move fast. You have to move uh, kind of quickly and quietly and uh, try and get as much reporting done before you know the police come and shut you down. Um, one last question on craft before we move on. Um, is there a danger in, in, in immersion in your I mean, you're fluent in Chinese. Is there a danger in losing perspective? Can you can you get too close? It's a very good question, and I hope not. But there is a danger that you stop seeing things. You know, I've been a foreign correspondent for 27 years. And, you know, the disadvantage of arriving somewhere for the first time, and I'm sure it's the same if you're a diplomat or uh, in any of these jobs, you, you know much less than, than you should. But you see things and think, well, why is that that way? And so clearly the danger of being here too long is that uh, you start to think, well, of course it's that way. And how can it be any other way? And I think that the, the moral danger for a reporter in a place like China is you hear about someone organizing a protest. And as your, your, your instinct is, well, I mean, that's not, that's not going to go anywhere because they're going to get shut down. They're going to get locked up. They're going to get silenced. What did they expect? How could that have made any sense? And you have to try and hang on to your original uh, kind of moral, I don't know if the word is indignation or clarity, that you know what, it just shouldn't be that way. And even if this was doomed, and even if, of course, it was not going to work, um, you know, I'm going to carry on uh, reporting it. And, you know, the propaganda machine has done a very good job of trying to turn the Chinese people against Western media. When I was here 25 years ago, my first posting, if you turned up at a place where they were building a dam, flooding people's farms, stealing the compensation money, when you turned up, the farmers would be, ah, a foreign journalist, I've got my dossier, of, you know, the, the, the ills that have been done to us are handed over. Now it's much more, you know, hmm, you're a foreign journalist, are you here to steal our secrets? You know, someone might call the police on you. Um, so they've done a very effective job in trying to kind of turn Chinese people. That said, Chinese people are still very often astonishingly friendly and hospitable and curious uh, and just generally kind of lovely at this kind of foreigner blundering around their mass wedding and they're amazingly tolerant. Um, when we when you were here last, um, uh, President Xi had just come out of his zero COVID policy. And I wanted to ask you about the impact, the economic, political impact, the bigger picture takeaways on COVID. What, what I mean, we've had a post-COVID reaction in many different ways. How would you describe the take the takeaways from COVID? How has it affected the Chinese economy and, and politics, even though uh, the Chinese clearly have moved past it? So you asked, a, you have a very good title for this talk, which is, you know, getting China right. And, you know, potentially how do Western observers get it wrong? So I'll give you a quick example of getting China wrong. I think there was a narrative 
when the COVID controls were kind of dismantled and chaotically fell apart at the end of 2022, very beginning of 2023. And the idea was that uh, students and other young people had come out. They had these white paper protests. There's one in Beijing, one in Shanghai, some other college campuses. They'd said down with Xi Jinping in Shanghai, and then the party took fright and abandoned zero COVID. And I think that's a very oversimple uh, vision of what happened. I think that actually the variant, the Omicron variant we were dealing with at the end had completely overwhelmed even their extraordinarily strict controls. They knew that the people were exhausted. The economy was in terrible shape. People were tired. Uh, and that it wasn't going to be possible to lock the whole country down again for, you know, as tightly as they might have to. And so they just at that point decided to let it rip as fast as possible and to hide the wave of deaths that we know happened. And I went straight away to a rural village that I'd been to at the very beginning of the pandemic, stood in a, ca in a township hospital where they had not even no medicine, but they didn't have acetaminophen. They didn't have painkillers. They didn't have, uh, let alone, you know, the sort of advanced Paxlovid sort of drugs. Uh, and the doctor told me, I'm not allowed to write COVID on death certificates because we've had an order that that has to be a political decision from higher ups. So they just hid the deaths and the crematorium in this county was running, you know, round the clock uh, to get rid of the excess deaths. So that was a big shock. That's the sort of thing I suspect many people in the West would imagine that would make people still lingeringly angry with the government for the party with Xi Jinping. Weirdly, maybe not weirdly, I can tell you that when you ask people point blank, are you still kind of upset about the pandemic or if the country is in a kind of in, in an economic funk, is it because of the pandemic? People will typically say, oh, no, it was more than a year ago now, you know, it'd be ridiculous to still blame the pandemic. So that's not the narrative. But then you say to people, OK, so how is the economy right now? It's terrible. Why is it terrible? Nobody's spending any money. Why are people not spending any money? Oh, well, you see, during the pandemic, we were locked down in this town for sort of three months and no one had any income, but they had to make their mortgage payments, they had to make their car loan payments. And so people are really frightened. They, they had to dip into their savings. And so they don't want to spend money if they don't have to. And because we built this enormous quarantine hospital, which cost a fortune, the government's gone bankrupt. And so my brother-in-law, he's a policeman. He hasn't been paid on time for the last six months. So when he does get his salary and he doesn't get any overtime at the moment, uh, of course, he just saves it because he's scared. And so if you ask people in China, what do you think of the Communist Party? You are not going to get a particularly uh, candid response. And even if you ask people, do you think that zero COVID was a good policy? They're not going to give you a very straight response because it's his policy. But if you ask people why you're unhappy, a lot of the answers absolutely have to do with the fact that this economy was locked down in a, in a way that just didn't happen in any other large economy. And so I think that the pandemic hangover is extraordinarily important. And it's that lack of confidence, that lack of consumer demand that is adding on some other structural problems to do with, you know, the property market, uh, you know, basically trying to sort of softly deflate a dangerous bubble. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And so people are in a funk. People are very fed up. They have lost their confidence that this uh, government knows what it's doing. Uh, there's a sense of policy drift that uh, Xi Jinping and the leadership are very good at saying what they don't like. They don't want, you know, speculation. Uh, they don't want to be dependent on foreigners for technology. But they're less. They don't want to have kind of, you know, housing being bought for sort of speculation rather than for living in. It's this rather austere, conservative with a small c uh, kind of language that we hear from the leadership. Um, but what we and so lots of language about kind of hard work and hardship and following the national interest and being disciplined. Very little sense that 
they have solutions large enough and quick enough to get this economy back to the economy that people are used to. And, and maybe, you know, the two most common phrases that I hear when I'm out in China, I try and go out every week outside Beijing, uh, you know, because it's like covering America from Washington. It's just not the same thing. People will say, um, we just wonder when things are going to get back to being normal again. We'd like things to get back to being normal again. And then if you ask them about why young people are not marrying, why people are not having kids, why people are not buying apartments, they all say the same phrase, which is, uh, you know, just the pressure is too much. People feel too much pressure. They just can't. Everyone's just hunkering down. Uh, is this phrase you hear all the time as an explanation for everything. So it's a very, it's not in a revolutionary mood. It's not about to overthrow the Communist Party, but people are really fed up and uncertain and almost bewildered at the lack of direction from the top. Hmm. Um, those protests, you want to explain to our viewers why they were called the white paper protests? So it was one of these things that I think began outside China that when you're banned from holding up a slogan saying, you know, what you think of the government, the last thing that you try to do is just hold up a blank piece of paper. And it turns out that you can get locked up in China for holding up a, a blank piece of paper. There's no sense. Those were the most significant protests. When were they? November of 2022? Before? Yeah. Yeah. Those protests were described, you, you may even have described them this way, as the most significant since Tiananmen in 19, 1989. Um, any uh, headlines or trend lines with respect to protests that you've seen building through 2023? I suspect not, or you would have reported on it. No, and, and, and I was there, and they were amazingly brave protests and, and, and really extraordinary, but the total number of people there was fewer than 1,000 people in a city of 22 million, in a country of 1.4 billion. So um, they were exceptionally rare and they were very revealing. But the police, you know, they had armies and armies and armies of police there. Um, and when they chose to, they let it run to keep it sort of as quiet as they could for as long as they could. And then at about two in the morning, they just shut that thing down. And you've just never seen these armies of police coming out of the darkness and just shutting it down in a way that was much less overtly brutal than, say, something you would see in Moscow. Uh, it was very, very kind of coldly, clinically efficient operation. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. A lot of that has to do with that. And I want to move from protest to surveillance, surveillance because I think it's a natural transition. Uh, uh, you wrote a fascinating column on a visit to a police museum. And you riffed off a, a book by a, Claremont, a Claremont scholar called um, the, yeah, the Sentinel State. Um, and you pointed out, or maybe he does, that when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, East German Security Service, Stasi, had uh, one officer for every 165 citizens. And that would have required in China 8.5 million officers, secret police, to match that ratio. 
And you describe a different kind of surveillance, surveillance, not so much secret police, but police who are positively uh, more or less integrated into the population. Could you tell us how the the Chinese surveillance surveillance state works? It obviously is working. Fact- yeah, so it is, I think, you know, arguably the most capable surveillance state in the world. And technology is part of it. So, you know, after those white paper protests, they went around and they found all of the students and young people who had been kind of leading that protest. They went through their social media groups, their uh, supposedly encrypted communications. They were also able to get people's identities, even though everyone back then was still wearing pandemic face masks, but they the, the cameras could still work out who they were. And they were all called in and frightened. Their parents were called in and frightened. They were threatened with being kicked out of university, threatened with losing their jobs. Some of them were detained. That's a very effective operation. But the surveillance is not the only secret. And so Minchin Pei's book, which I do recommend to people, The Sentinel State, you're absolutely right. It sort of says, how does China have this extraordinary surveillance machine without something that is proportionally the size of the stars or even the old Soviet KGB? The actual Chinese secret police, you know, there's various different overlapping agencies, but the main domestic one uh, the Guobao or the Zhengbao, which is part of the main police force, is probably 100,000 officers instead of, as you say, 8.5 million, which you would need to match these German proportion. And so the secret is that beat cops in regular neighborhood police stations have a political side to their work. There is no bright shining line between their work of fighting crime, maintaining social stability, and alerting the machine that someone is disgruntled and might sort of start a protest because they haven't been paid, uh, or that uh, someone is disgruntled about the environment, or someone was bad-mouthing the Communist Party. And they achieved that information by running informants. One of the extremely interesting things that Minchin Bay did with this book is go through, you know, the Communist Party is extremely secretive, but it's also very large, and every bit of it needs to boast to their bosses about how much work they're doing. And so if you know where to look, you can find gazettes and workbooks and work reports where they talk about how many informants each beat cop is supposed to recruit, or chillingly, universities. He found documents where an individual university would say, we are proud to say that every foreign teacher, every foreign student, every Uyghur student, every Tibetan student is under total surveillance. And we're doing this in part with students who have been recruited as spies in classrooms. Our university is proud to have one student per classroom who is reporting on their professor and reporting to us if they're saying something that is against the Communist Party or is against the national interest. And so there's a sense of, you know, he does the numbers, maybe 10 or 15 million uh, often unpaid volunteer informants in this country. And how do you achieve that? Well, in a Leninist system, you know, this is a machine that can say to people, okay, you're a college professor. You've been invited to a conference overseas. You're desperate to go to it. Well, you can only go if you report on your colleague. Uh, And, you know, if you're a student, we can accelerate your access to being a Communist Party member if you report on your professor. And so it goes. And so it's an extraordinarily effective, decentralized, uh, sort of what I call in the end, a police state hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. So you're paid in a way in political and social capital, not paid informants. This is not material incentives, presumably, yeah. to get people to do this. Yeah. And a lot of threats. A lot of threats to people's families. And, you know, there are many wonderful Chinese students in the States. But one of the kind of sad things you hear is that Chinese students in some ways are often scared of each other in American campuses, certainly if they're studying anything politically sensitive. I've had conversations with an American professor who teaches Chinese politics who said that 
his Chinese graduate students will say to him, could you make sure that I'm not in a class with anyone else Chinese? And that's simply because they know that in some cases, if you say something that is not against, that is against the Communist Party in a classroom in an American campus, then potentially that will be reported back to the local embassy, back to the police in China who will go and visit your parents, who will say, your daughter, your son is shooting her mouth off, his mouth off in this college in the States. You know, you need to get on touch with them and say that, you know, they, they need to cut that out or they're never going to get a job uh, when they get back to China. We'll make sure of it. And so there's just this extraordinary thoroughness to the machine. It's not Putin's Russia. It's not Saddam you know, Hussein's Iraq. Enemies of Xi Jinping don't get found in the morning in the street with a bullet in their forehead in the gutter. It's not that kind of dictatorship. It's this extraordinarily patient, thorough, grey, clinical machine. You know, they'll, I wrote in a column, you know, they'll steal your freedom, but there's always paperwork. They'll give you your receipt. Fascinating. Um, I want to move um, in a minute or two to the U.S.-China piece of this, but I want to ask you a question about Xi. I mean, the last time we spoke, I think the, the panel was entitled, Is This Xi's China? Um, Kevin Rudd, the former Australian prime minister, uh, wrote a piece not long ago in Foreign Affairs in which he argued that she had brought to an end the, what he called the pragmatic, non-ideological mode of governance. And you now have what Rudd described as ideological man. Um, is that a fair characterization of uh, some of the overriding um, transformation that she has brought to China? It is she's China, very much so? Absolutely. And I think in two ways. So for one thing, I think that now Ambassador Rudd, I think he's the Australian ambassador in Washington. Yes, he is. He, I think he's absolutely right that there is, you know, that old idea that you could somehow, even as, say, the American government, you could try and shape China's policies by saying, you know, if you do this, you could be in danger of damaging your GDP growth. Uh, or you may find that foreign investors are kind of alarmed. Or if you crack down on the freedoms of Hong Kong and turn Hong Kong into just another Chinese mainland city, well, it will not be a successful sort of world capital. What we've discovered, financial capital, what we've understood with Xi Jinping is that for him, the priority is the survival of the Communist Party, the absolute authority of the Communist Party. And he doesn't wake up in the morning and think, I'd better be careful what the Communist Party does to Hong Kong. He wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'd better be careful what Hong Kong does to the Communist Party. And he just has a very different set of priorities. And he's absolutely very clearly much more ideological. I mean, we're seeing a return of, you know, far more you know, even at a basic level, the amount of time that college professors, that government bureaucrats, that central bankers, that people who work in very large state enterprises, even private companies here, the amount of time that they have to spend pretending to study the latest Xi Jinping thought is just going, you know, going up. It's hours and hours and hours every month. And it's, you know, essentially pointless activity, but it's a sort of discipline driver. The other way in which this is Xi Jinping's China in a way that was not true before him is that Chinese politics was always an exercise in kind of factions and balancing factions. And, you know, the kind of the diplomats and journalists of Beijing would have, you know, the China Youth League faction was kind of, you know, on the ascendant and the Shanghai faction was, you know, on the way down. And, you know, you'd look at personnel choices. There was an idea that every Communist Party supreme leader somehow governed at the pleasure of those various factions, or at least kept safe by balancing those factions. Xi Jinping, when he got his third term, hacked the Politburo and particularly the, the, the standing committee 
the core of the core of the Politburo with people whose overwhelmingly their most obvious qualification is that they are loyal to Xi Jinping, that they have worked with Xi Jinping back when he was a provincial governor or a provincial party secretary, and he trusts them. The heads of the military are very often people who worked with him back in his days in the provinces. And so this is Xi Jinping's machine. And there are no dissenting kind of voices. And the kind of iterative policy debate in, say, the economic sphere that used to be possible 20 years ago, um, one of the sort of sources of gloom when I meet, you know, retired technocrats or retired officials or kind of business people here is that they don't sense that there is a kind of policy discussion which is able to really push back and say to Xi Jinping, you know what, maybe we got this wrong, or do you think you got this wrong? But, but the, you know, the claim was made very soon after he packed the standing committee with his people that, you know, the apologist said, oh, this is good, you see, because he doesn't have to watch his back anymore. And so now, now you wait, he'll be pragmatic as you like, because he's got only his own people. But I'm afraid the evidence just isn't there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I want to use the balance of the session now to talk about a subject that personally interests me, and that is the notion of threat inflation. Very often, American policymakers willingly, unwillingly, consciously, unconsciously have deployed threat inflation in order to mobilize support for a policy. And I'm just wondering, I mean, I'm, uh, no one would not, would not argue that China doesn't challenge the, it's a pure competitor, according to the National Security Strategy paper. It poses serious dangers and challenges to the United States. But is how big is the gap? Uh, I think, use the economist's phrase, between the Chinese swagger and the swag. I mean, the largest military in the world, 2 million humans under arms, largest Navy in the world, by 2030, 1,000 nukes. And yet, I think as you've written, uh, tough recruiting skilled uh, officers for the Chinese military haven't fought and been involved in combat. In fact, the last serious internal security challenge was probably Tiananmen in 1989, right? And before that, Vietnam in 1979. So, and same on the economy. What is the delta here, do you think, between our concern? with a rising China and China's own vulnerabilities and problems, because they seem to be manifesting themselves now more than ever. So certainly, uh, I think that, you know, I was actually back in Washington for the first time in quite a while, uh, late last year, and I was struck by how much of the discussion of China seemed to be a kind of to, to, to flip between kind of panic and complacency. And it seems to me that that's not a very helpful kind of uh, sort of binary to be locked into. So, you know, I, I don't share the view of some, you know, four-star American commanders that, you know, we're going, my gut tells me we will fight next year or whatever it is that that four-star Air Force general said. Um, if I thought we were going to fight next year, I would not be sitting here in Beijing waiting to have a, you know, a war break out around me. Um, I do think that China's ambitions are uh, extremely uh, disruptive I don't think that the plan is to have kind of Xi Jinping thought taught in American schools uh, and everyone's sort of speaking Chinese. I think that China would like to be so large by kind of mid-century and so powerful that no other country on earth gets to say no to China. And I think that uh, there are some people who kind of raise a straw man, which is where the complacency comes. And they say, well, 
That being so, if America isn't going to be replaced directly one for one as a kind of global superpower by China in every sort of sphere, uh, if China isn't going to be trying to make everyone start a communist party, uh, you know, then why should we worry? Well, I think that actually in order for China to be not gainsaid, in order for China not to be sanctioned or judged or held to account, it's planning to, if needs be, certainly bend and stretch and twist a lot of rules, rewrite a lot of language so that human rights and democracy and uh, the, the rule of law and the respect for the UN Charter do, do not really mean anything anymore because, you know, China says that it's absolutely a, you know, total defender of the UN Charter, but it's also backing Russia pretty much in Ukraine. So, you know, try and work out how that works. So I think that China's rise is enormously disruptive, so we should not be complacent, but I also don't think we should be panicking. On the the part of, so it was actually a colleague of mine, Jeremy Page, who wrote about the PLA's difficulties. And I do take that very seriously. And I think also I take seriously some of the structural problems that the Chinese economy faces. Maybe because I'm a kind of gloomy sort, um, I'm not that comforted by the idea that their military isn't as strong as America's or that their economy has some serious problems. Because I think that Vladimir Putin is giving us an object lesson in Ukraine that a declining, uh, kind of economically weak uh, country with a fairly unimpressive or under underperforming military, if it is intently focused on a goal that matters more to the to the aggressor than it does to the West, say, then that can be rather effective. And so I worry that it's not a reason to be very calm about China's posture, certainly in its neighbourhood just because its demographics are going wrong, its economy has some major structural problems, and its military isn't as tough as, uh, uh, you know, isn't a match one for one with America's, because, you know, declining revisionist powers that, that care intently about one particular issue, and in the Chinese context, I'm talking about Taiwan and the South China Sea, they can do a lot of damage, because, you know, are we really, uh, are we really going to go to war with China for some of those Kind of disputes, and, and I think that's that's the, the the grounds for neither panic nor complacency, but an extremely clear-eyed attempt to constantly measure exactly how uh, large their ambitions are and try and listen to them on their own terms uh, about the world order that they would like to see. And one of the upsides of the increasingly assertive Xi Jinping Chinese foreign policy is that. In the old days, Chinese diplomats would give you very, very bland talking points. There was not much point talking to them. Now they are much more willing to explain to you how they see the world. And if you do them the credit of just taking them at their word and listening to what they're saying and reading what they write, I think that what they have in mind is exceptionally disruptive to a liberal world order that the economists certainly hold dear. You do believe that, that it is, that it is strategically disruptive. That their goal is to sort of not take over the world, but to rewrite the rules, presumably that we've written by and large, the LIO, the liberal international order. But then, I mean, they don't want to. Well, what, how do you see the the in broad terms the strategy to re rewrite the world, to to dominate the rules, to help shape them? I mean, I think if you were to go back to 1945. And the kind of the 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 the, the slightly awkward balance, the trade-off that was struck when the post-45 order was designed, you had this tension between 
the absolute rights of sovereign states and inviolable, inalienable rights of individuals through things like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And I think that China, uh, and you know, we know if you go back to your history books that in 45, the Soviets and their allies tried to block the kind of the Western-led, American-led, Eleanor Roosevelt drafted, you know, UN Declaration on Human Rights and downplay individual rights in favor of kind of collective rights to be well-fed and to have a job and social rights. And, you know, they were against free movement and refugees. They were against, uh, you know, the rule of law, international law, interventionism. The Chinese, I think, look back at that moment in 45 and they think, okay, well, the Soviets were outvoted in 45. But now in 2024, maybe there are enough countries out there that we have the numbers. If we can reopen that discussion, and I don't think they want to abolish the UN. I don't think they want to abolish uh, the international rules-based order, but they want precisely that half of it, which makes the world safe for sovereign states. Absolute deference to sovereign states and their interests. So some sort of combination of sort of 19th century Westphalian kind of great power balancing, you know, I think they'd be very happy as one of the kind of mustachioed uh, sort of generals around the sort of mahogany table in Vienna in sort of the late 1890s, kind of, you know, balancing power with an entirely uh, kind of interest-based analysis, plus kind of the tributary system with Chinese kind of the Chinese empire at the middle and, and its kind of tributary kingdoms radiating out. Some kind of combination of that they could live with. And that the, the world should no longer criticize China. In fact, the world should say that China's system is just as liberal uh, it's just as kind of freedom-loving and democratic as anyone else's. It's just that democracy means a different thing. It's an extremely coldly realist view of spheres of influence, might makes right. And they're feeling, if they're feeling very anxious domestically about the economy, which I think they are, I think they're feeling pretty cocky right now about the international situation. They look at Ukraine and they look at what's happening in the House of Representatives, which they certainly watch very closely. And they think, you see, we told you. You know, the economist writes about the West's unity being impressive. Just took time. Now look at it. Doesn't look very impressive now, does it? No, it turns out the West is just as selfish as we always said. And look at Gaza. Look at how isolated the Americans are now. How dare the Americans talk about human rights when they're refusing to, you know, you saw the Chinese permanent representative in the UN, you know, once again condemning the latest American veto. We saw the, the, the chief legal advisor, the Chinese foreign ministry, went to the International Court of Justice last week in The Hague and said that armed resistance to an occupying force is a legitimate uh, is legitimate self-defense under international law. And he was talking about Hamas. He's, he didn't name Hamas, but that's what he was saying. And so that doesn't mean, does the, do the Chinese love Hamas? Of course they don't love Hamas, but they see an opportunity to lead a large number of countries who are Dis impatient and disappointed and resentful of American leadership. And they see a tremendous opportunity to call out above all America on what they would see as America's shocking double standards. And kind of uh, that the, the, when America said it stood for values, it was always just a cover for hegemony. And now look, and I think that, you know, there's a lively debate here in, Be in Beijing as to whether they would like Donald Trump to win a second term. Um, and some people see that, you know, there'd be enormous trade uh, disruptions, of course, and potentially very disruptive tariffs. But in as much as Donald Trump breaks NATO or breaks alliances with Japanese or the South Koreans or 
uh, seems not to believe in very much in the way of sort of America as a shining city on a hill. They that suits them down to the ground. They like that. They like that very much. Yeah, um, we're almost out of time, but I, I don't want to let you go without a word on Taiwan. Um, you you've written that the real salience of Taiwan for China has a lot to do with the Communist Party's view that its loss represents a blow of real legitimacy, a direct threat to the party. That's fascinating, because I guess you could argue that, well, let me ask you the question. Does that mean the Chinese public's commitment to the reunification of Taiwan is somehow open for negotiation, that it's the party that's driving this and always has? They've done, an ex- they've done an exceptionally good job of educating the Chinese public that, you know, when China was weak, foreign powers came and carved off pieces of China. And so territorial integrity is the mark of a Chinese government that deserves to rule. Only a Chinese government that can keep its territory whole uh, deserves to rule, because that was the failure of the emperors the last emperors, that they lost territories, you know, Hong Kong or other territories to outsiders. And so that makes it extremely difficult for any Chinese leader to let territory go. But on the other hand, you know, they actually lost a ton of territory to Russia up in Siberia, and they don't talk about that anymore. So these are also political choices that they have made to kind of educate the Chinese public this way. The other fact that I think is enormously important for a Chinese leader, and which we spend a lot of time talking about here in China, in Beijing, I mean, sort of, essentially trying to psychoanalyze Xi Jinping, is if Xi Jinping were ever able to retake Taiwan, potentially because an isolationist American government did stand in his way, then he would have ended the Chinese civil war that Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, failed to end completely because, of course, the losers of the Chinese civil war fled with millions of troops and lots of gold and treasure to the island of Taiwan. And the island of Taiwan was their place in exile, which Mao never conquered. And so if Xi could conquer Taiwan, then he would be greater than Mao. He would be up in the pantheon of the greatest unifying Chinese emperors in history. And it's a very odd thing, but when kind of conversation at an ambassador's dining table in Beijing, you know, at the end of the meal turns to, you know, people's predictions about how dangerous the Taiwan situation is, very often people are starting to analyze just any language they've heard about whether Xi Jinping feels that this is his legacy personally. Does it have to happen while he is still in office, while he is still alive? Is this something that uh, when he says, you know, this is not a problem that can be passed from one generation to another, is that just rhetoric? Or is he saying that this has to be solved on his watch? And so it's an extraordinary thing. We're here in 2024, surrounded by information. We have presidents of America tweeting their innermost ids, uh, you know. And in China, it's not a wildly different job from the job that was being done by journalists and diplomats back in the 1970s uh, or diplomats back in the 1950s. This black box of Chinese elite politics trying to work out what might be in the head of one man, the supreme leader, based on his speeches, his utterances and glimpses that foreign leaders have had of him, you know, when they sit in those two armchairs with the cups of tea with the lids on. It's a very, very strangely old-fashioned uh, job that we do here, even in the most sort of interesting story that there is in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, and getting China right then becomes uh, even more difficult and even more challenging if, in fact, that that calculation um, is correct. I guess we better hope that the return of ideological man 
and Xi's commitment to the party and the relationship between taking Taiwan one way or another uh, is the ultimate triumph of the party, as you've written. Um, that's a concern. Um, we'll have to come back again. I mean, I have to say again, and it's not it's not false flattery, 45 minutes of just extraordinary wisdom and authority based on not just your capacity to intuit the granular, but to rise above the granular and, and leave some really fascinating conceptual takeaways. So for that, David Rennie, I thank you. It's uh, been a masterclass in how to read China. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. I'm Aaron David Miller. And until next time, think positive and test negative.